Hey fam, welcome to another episode of the Myths That Make Us podcast. Today we have on Will Reason, who is a name that has continued to come up whenever I talk to people here in Austin uh, about trauma. Um, Since writing What is Trauma, uh, whenever I meet someone who is local, who has listened to the podcast, they kept asking me, have you heard of Will? Have you talked to Will? You should talk to Will. And Will is a local Austin superstar when it comes to trauma-informed coaching. And he is the co-founder of the Somatic Coaching Institute, where he brings his decades of experience to help teach trainers and facilitators and coaches who want to understand how to coach people who may have um, very intense trauma in their past. And once you hear his story, it's going to make sense why this is the right guy to be teaching this. I can feel that there's going to be quite a few more conversations between Will and I, and it has been an honor to get to meet more and more people in this space because I truly feel that one of the core unrecognized sources of most mental disorders and chronic physical disorders is undiagnosed and unprocessed trauma. We all have our own forms of trauma and understanding this more, I really truly believe it's just going to help more people flourish and to live the type of lives that that little whisper inside of them is asking them to live. And so this episode is dedicated to that. If you would like to support the podcast, the most direct ways that you can do that is to sign up for my journaling course at my website, erigotzi.com, and to sign up for my uh, dream interpretation newsletter, which will eventually become a dream interpretation course, which I'm super excited about. And as always, if this episode resonates with you, please share it with people that you love. And thank you so much for your time and your attention. It is truly an honor. And I love that I get to do this and that I get to be received by y'all. I love y'all so much. And without further ado, please enjoy today's episode. Will, thank you for coming on the podcast. So this past, last year, about midway through, I was getting really into trauma and I was reading and researching And whenever I would tell people that lived in Austin that I was doing this, I kept hearing this name. You should talk to Will. You should talk to Will. And I didn't know who you were. And we connected like three weeks ago. And we literally could not stop talking for about three hours. And I had to go to sleep. And we were like, we've got to record it next time. And so thank you for coming on the podcast. I'm excited for people listening to get to learn what it is you do. And the story that brought you here, because it's fucking awesome. And the way I like to introduce the guests to the listeners so they can begin to kind of have an understanding is I have a couple of questions that I like to start with. The first one is, let's say that you just finished doing something that puts you in the flow and you're coming out of that activity. And I walk up to you and I ask you, you know, like I introduce myself, hey, I'm Eric, who are you and what do you do? And that you can feel that what I'm asking is like, how did you get to the point where you could even do that? What would your answer be? Hmm. 
Love that question, Eric. Um, you know, who am I and what do I do? And from that place of, of coming out of flow. Hmm. Well, I'd say I'm Will. <laughs> and what I do is simple and complex. Um, you know, it's helping people to really connect to that, to the aliveness that's inside of them and bridge the gap between the world and themselves, you know, using the body as the conduit for that. Um, but I think that explaining that requires a story, mm. you know, like, because I think that your question, what had to happen for me to be where I am is, is probably more relevant than what it is that I do. What I do yeah. can be very nebulous and putting it into words. If you asked, you know, five different clients that I have worked with, they'd all say something a little bit different. Beautiful. Then we will get into your story. There's, um, but before we do, there's a couple of questions that I love asking. How would your best friend describe you and what you do in the world? Mm. Mm -hmm. My best friend would describe me as heart-centered, passionate, uh, obsessive with personal development, somatics, trauma, human development, really more than anything, not personal, but human development. Mm. And they describe what I do in the world as working with high net worth and high performing individuals and helping them to, to build resilience regulation in the nervous system, resilience building. And that usually looks like exponential change in relationships and business and an and assortment of different things. How would your lover describe you and what you do? <laughs> she would describe me as kind, heart-centered, loving, safe. That's a word that I hear a lot reflected to me. Um, and what I do yeah, it'd be similar. Yeah, that moving from that heart-centered place of helping people to connect to the, the richness of, of living of life inside themselves. And she and I also run a training company teaching facilitators, doctors, therapists, coaches, how to work through a trauma-informed lens. Mm, and we will get to that That's idea, right. trauma-informed, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. How would your father describe you and what you do? Mm. He would describe me as creative, passionate. I think he'd describe what I do more as therapy than as coaching. He, he comes from a generation I don't think necessarily understands what the differentiation is there. But mm. he'd say that I help people um, to become you know, a more expressed version of themselves maybe. And how would your mother describe you and what you do? She would also describe me as heart-centered, passionate, creative. Um, she'd say I work with highly influential people uh, and that I'm doing cutting edge work, combining therapy and coaching together, like a therapeutic approach to uh, human development and using these really obscure and avant-garde techniques to help people to, to change and transform. What's really cool is I've asked these set of questions over a hundred people 
and you probably have the most cohesive, like each of the reflections are close to the same in the four major relationships in your life. So that's an interesting thing that I just feel compelled to articulate. And the last of these series of questions is, how would God or source or universe, if you had to intuit, how would that thing describe what is will and what is will doing? What would that thing say? Hmm. Will is a reflection of me that's curiously exploring what it means to be alive and attempting to quantify consciousness and attempting to bring that out in others, attempting to help them to awaken to that divine spark. Beautiful. What do you recall as your first memory? So now we're going to move into the story, yep. the story of Will. My first memory, I know exactly what it was. I, it was my second birthday. There was a small birthday party. I remember the farm that we were living on in, in New England. I was born in Massachusetts outside of Springfield. And we were having this birthday party and there was a, we had a swing set. There was this old tree stump near the swing set and we were all outside playing. And I remember finding a snake inside of this tree stump. I remember the road that I used to walk on with my grandparents that was in view and there was a lake across the street from that road. What is the primary emotion that you have associated with that memory? Curiosity, joy. Yeah, joy. One of my intuitions is um, someone's first memory or the first one that they have access to, that the emotional disposition of that memory kind of sets the like genre of the story that they tell, you know, like if it's like an action movie or a horror movie or whatever, mm -hmm. um, you know, and the word that I heard there is curious. And that that was yeah. the thing that was reflected back in each person. Yeah. What do you remember being the first story that really captured you as a child? So that could be a movie, that could be a bedtime story, shit, it could be a family story about something or from a book. But what do you remember being the first story that really seized you when you were a boy? And it doesn't have to be chronologically correct. Mm -hmm. When I was a kid, I read, as soon as I could read, I read voraciously. Um, there was a series that my father read to me that I remember. It's called the Redwall series. I don't know if you've heard of it. And it's a fantasy series. And the main characters are mice and beavers and animals, but they're, it's kind of overlaid and set um, with a bit of a mythic tone, kings and queens and adventures and things like that. And the book series is like 13 books long or 12 books long. I can't remember exactly now at this point, but I loved that story. And when I was old enough to read, I loved Lord of the Rings. Mm. 
Who was your favorite character in the first series? I believe you said it was Redwall. I don't remember the names of the characters. It was probably the, the um, it was the hero. Whoever right. that hero was, yeah. Was so hero. this is beautiful and fun. Um, I'm going to invite you to tell all of us listening um, your version of that story as if you were telling a bedtime story to a smart 10-year-old. So as long as it takes you to tell it and not to tell it from rote memory from the mind, but like you're really in the moment, like you're with, you know, maybe it's your son or your daughter, or your niece or your nephew, and they want a good story. Mm. And you're going to use this as the skeleton. Love that, Eric. Love it. <laughs> Mm. Well, like any good story, it begins at the beginning, of course, right? <laughs> but it begins with the the hero not knowing that they're the hero. And the quick pause here, and a lot of people do this, instead of telling it, you're explaining it. I'm explaining it. And I want story. to invite you, like, I'm the 10-year-old boy. I don't care about the philosophy behind it or anything. <laughs> like, tell me a story, dog. Okay. How much detail do you want? Fall into the moment of like, you know, if you're telling this to a boy or a daughter, eight minutes is too long. They're falling asleep. So like really try to feel like close your eyes and you're on the bed at the foot, you know, and it's nighttime and you just fucking help them get dressed after a shower. That's probably way too old to be doing that, but <laughs> you know, you're, you're there and they're asking for a story. Mm. And so once upon a time. Yeah. Once upon a time I was a little kid, the world was wondrous. Everything was exciting. And I was curious about all of it. I asked questions. I wanted to learn. And I want to understand why. My middle name is Reason. It's spelled Rezin, R-E-Z-I-N. And growing up, that was my biggest question to everything and everyone. Why is this the way it is? And I was an explorer. I explored my imagination. I explored the world. And I had fun. Creativity was a huge part of my life. Art, music, stories. All of it helped me to feel connected to being alive. I played outside. We didn't have a television when I grew up until I was 13 or 14 years old. I learned how to use my imagination. Being a part of the family unit that I was a part of, family was so important in our world. We were tight. We were tightly together. I learned about love. I learned about integrity. 
learned about joy until I was a teenager. And then I learned about pain and fear and sadness. I learned about being alone and I learned how to find my way in that. And that pain sent me on a journey exploring myself and asking questions deeper and deeper inside myself to better understand the why. And my curiosity kept me connected to the joy of being alive. Without it, I would have, I, I wouldn't be where I am. I might've given up. I might've ended up in jail. No. That curiosity helped me to better understand people that were different than me. We moved a lot when I was young. When I turned 10, we'd lived in 10 homes. It's not counting the apartments we lived in. I learned about flexibility. Being flexible is special. And if I was talking to a, you know, my son, I might encourage him to explore that flexibility and that creativity. What I fucking love is the reason I ask people to tell their favorite childhood story in their own way, like they're telling it to a 10 year old is because it's their story. Either you on purpose didn't tell the childhood story because you understood or you intuitively understood so much that you just told your story. But either way, <laughs> you I know that you understood me and then you told your story and it feels like it was intuitive because it's also why you laughed and said, I love that question, Eric, is because you saw it and you just fucking went with it. And it's hilarious because one of my favorite parts of the podcast is to wait for them to finish telling the story. And then I just look at them kind of like, that's your story, dog. And you were just like, I'm just going to tell my story. <laughs> <laughs> and I love that you could see into that. When we talked earlier, um, one of the things that really stood out to me is uh, you left home early and were sent to what type of schooling would you call it? And can you kind of tell us the story of why how long would you learn? And then your first quote unquote coming home moment happened when you were still a teenager. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> like I was saying in the way I was telling that story, at around 12 years old, things were tough in my family unit. My father was traveling three, three weeks out of the month sometimes. And my mother was a school teacher and struggling with taking care of us at home. And I was 12. I was beginning to push against the world, to push away from the world. And that meant push away from some of the rules and the, the structure that my parents had created. I wanted to know why, and there wasn't a good reason why. And so, you know, in that, in that developmental phase, I started to push away from the structure that I'd grown up in. 
And at some point it became too much for her and my father wasn't around. So I was sent to live in a group home. Um, and I was in different group homes for, from 12 through 15. Well, a portion of 15, 15 and a half, something like that, off and on. And it was a major point of upheaval in my life at that time. I, um, I was surrounded by people who either didn't have homes to live in, so foster care kind of situations, or were mandated by the courts to be there for behavioral issues. I lost my freedom, I, I, you know, my belongings, and my tether to this stability that I had lived with. And it was confusing yeah. at that age. So in and out of these homes, some of them um, had more structure than others. And I lived through some pretty significant abusive scenarios during those, those experiences, which I won't go into all the details, just being remaining sensitive to our listeners. And living through that stuff brought me face to face with the pain that can exist in our world. Yeah. Up until this point, I'd been relatively sheltered and isolated away from that. I'd heard stories about these things, but I was taught, you know, give your shirt to that person who needs it. Um, turn the other cheek. Raised in a very conservative Christian household. And so I began my journey of being exposed to the rawness and the realness of life outside of this insulated bubble. And in the beginning, it was difficult. It was, you know confusing. And through that, I grew. I found this part of myself, the part of myself that could care for me. Mm. It took time to process that. I wouldn't have said that to you at that age, but I began to learn skills for emotional regulation. And I began- What age were you beginning to learn? So you are severed from the family structure. Mm -hmm. You go to a place where you essentially meet pain and your nervous system learns what trauma feels like. Mm -hmm. Would you say that you had PTSD? I'd say, yeah. And so at what point did you start to learn tools to help bring safety and healing to your nervous system? Because it sounds like we're at like age 15 or 16 right now. Yeah, somewhere between 12 and 15, yeah. So between 12 and 15, I was in and out of a few different small, like normal size group homes. But then at around 14, for the year from 14 to 15, I lived in a boot camp type facility. It was in the mountains in, it was in Virginia, central Virginia. It's no longer operational. But it's something that we might hear stories about in a movie, that place where kids end up where there's no real good structure of authority. And there's lots of people from all over the country that are there for pretty severe reasons. There's not a lot of oversight, not enough um, counselors to manage the structure of the kids and that kind of thing. Coming out of that, I came home to my parents beginning to split up and my father beginning the journey of gender reassignment. I dove deep into drugs. 
I mean, I began smoking weed and I began drinking pretty heavily. I mean, not drinking heavily, but smoking weed pretty heavily. And that was for me an escape. Now, throughout that process, I had counselors and people in my life, guides, we might call them, that did teach me tools for regulation, but I wouldn't have quantified it from the perspective that I do nowadays, yeah. you know? What was the, so when you get home from this movie-esque boot camp and your parents are divorcing, and your father is going on the journey of gender reassignment, what is the goal or the future that's keeping you alive that you're imagining is for you? You know, mm -hmm. like one of the things that I've really connected to is I went through some hard shit mm -hmm. in high school. And the thing that kept me going, man, was I'm gonna be a professional basketball player. So I just have to practice every day, eat right, watch film yep. and just, if I just look at that, I can walk through these halls of hell and I can get there. For me, um, throughout those experiences, I didn't really have that guiding light. I had prayer and then I somewhat abandoned that because it just didn't, didn't seem to be working, quote unquote, right? It wasn't the magical equation <laughs> that got me the, the thing that I wanted. <laughs> But coming out of that, I was going to be a rock star. I was going to be a mus musician. Awesome. Yeah, I, I see. I picked up the guitar and the drums and the keyboard and the bass, and I just dove into playing music. So I immersed myself in music, and I just kind of abandoned any sort of um, typical pathway. Mm -hmm. I, was, I skipped three grades throughout Whoa. school. I just skipped them. Like I skipped second grade, I skipped fourth grade, and then I skipped ninth grade. And then I only sort of halfway did part of 10th grade. And then I skipped 12th grade and just got my GED. So did you graduate when you were nine? <laughs> <laughs> no, there were lots of gaps in there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think one of the things that's, and I'd be curious to hear what words you would use because, but what I find is one of the most underrated soul saving stories and experiences is the felt sense of cultivating a skill towards a dream that yeah. feels meaningful, that the daily sense of growth in that skill, like reinforces you from the woes and the suffering of life. Like for me, it was, it was feeling that the jab step and the jump shot and the turnaround was getting better even if my fucking family was falling apart yeah. and I couldn't get the love that I wanted. Um, and for you, it was clearly music. And it feels it like it's yeah. so important. And what word would you use to describe, like, what is the animal nervous system experiencing that's so fucking soul nourishing from that? Because the only words that I have are like mastery or competence. And both of mm -hmm. those don't feel like they really grab it. I'm just curious what word you might use. Yeah, when I think back on my relationship with music and the evolution of that, um, I think for me it was, I felt safe. I felt regulated, I felt calm. I could connect to a, a, a place where all the pain was gone. Yeah, and it, it feels like symbolically, like if we're looking through the body at that feeling, like, it feels like 
by cultivating competence externally, mm-hmm. you're actually demonstrating to the body that you can regulate the world around you, which feels like it's almost inherently self-regulating the internal world. And again, I think it might be even way less poetic than that, but the more competence you have at whatever skill you're doing, the more your nervous system can predict what the next moment will be like. Mm. That is fundamentally what will allow the nervous system on some level to feel safe. And so maybe cultivating competence. Maybe. I think it's a constellation of things that happened, Eric. It was, um, I withdrew from my family unit as there was a lot of chaos happening throughout the divorce between my, my parents. So I withdrew and I stayed with a friend and I dove into music playing it um, as a means of managing what was still in my body Yeah, because it wasn't resolved at that point. And somehow in that intelligent turning towards feeling, um, I didn't realize I was turning towards feeling, but with smoking weed, I could sit and feel myself even in a way that was a little safer. Mm. It softened that a little bit. And that ended up becoming the portal for me with psychedelics. Mm. And I'm a psychonaut. I've spent two and a half months tripping continuously. We're gonna get to that story. So that was the portal for me. Psychedelics ended up being the entry point for me for healing because I, I, in those states, I would just go into self-expression. I could express the anger. I could express the rage. I could express the pain. I could cry. I could feel the stuff that was like bound inside of my body. It had an outlet. But up until that point, I resisted it. I buried it. I constricted around it. Um, and for a long time, I constricted around it. Yeah. Um, and simultaneously, I was probably one of the the most positively minded people that I've met. And no one would have known that I had lived through those things or was living through those things because I was a joy to be around. I was oriented to, to, to having fun. I was still curious about life. I was still learning. And the story about of Indiana Jones was a, one of those stories for me growing up too, where I'm like, you know, going on an adventure, I'm going to go discover these, these different cultures. I was fascinated with culture starting at 16. Mysticism, magic, all of it. And I went as deep into those, learning about those things as I possibly could at the time. And that was another tether for me. Oh, learning self-mastery. Oh, that's a thing. People do that. Maybe I'll start cultivating that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It sounds like the trail next to take might be psychedelics, but I'm curious, uh, when you graduated with the GED, uh, what was the life vision of the next thing to do first? Had you done a psychedelic before that? Yeah, there was um, the last year of high school. So I guess that would have been 11th grade for me. And you were eight. (laughs) 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 Yeah. Um, I was experimenting with LSD. We had a friend who was making it and- Whoa, that's not easy to make. It's not. I I, I don't claim to know how he was doing that. <laughs> Cause I looked into it in high school and it was like, uh-huh. 
No. Uh-huh. <laughs> you remember back that was, you know, <laughs> back in the day, the anarchist cookbook was circulating right. and people were trying to do all the things. Yeah. But we had a friend who, who was making it. And wow. so we were getting it by the sheet, sometimes by the, by the 10 sheet. And so every other day, I figured out the half-life. I needed to have a day in between so it didn't diminish in potency. So every other day we were tripping and I'd go into high school tripping. Whoa. I'd come home and I learned to live in this semi-altered psychedelic state. I say semi-altered because LSD is very different than something like ayahuasca. It for sure is. You know, yeah. like we can still interact with the world. We, you know, And my body acclimated to that over time. How long did you do that for? A year and a half. Hmm. Something like that. And were you taking a tab? Sometimes one, sometimes five, sometimes a 10 strip. God damn. I mean, dude, I drove across the country eating 100 hits acid. Like, I had traveled all the way across the country like that. I'm not proud to say this because I would never encourage anyone to do that. You know, I, I think it's highly irresponsible. And in that place that I was in in my life, I wanted to explore. Wow. I wanted to, you know, what are my edges? How far can I go? And for me, a lot of it was motivated by how can I consciously cross over to the other side would be a question. You know, I want to get to that place where all the pain disappears, where I'm feeling that sense of pure being and aliveness and and bliss. But that's, it was an illusion that I was chasing. Mm. I was created, I created a song with a friend and that song became the theme music of a couple of years of our lives exploring wow. LSD. And, and for the longest time in that period, my goal was to have enough LSD, MDMA, things like that to go and live in the woods for a year and just explore, but not really exploring the outside world. I wanted to explore the inside. But at that time, when I look back on it, I think it was more of an escaping yeah. than it was a moving towards something innate, like a healing that is, that's what I mean. And what age is this happening at, 18? Between 18 and 22, somewhere in there. And what were you doing uh, in the meat suit world in order to be able to fund this, mm-hmm. to pay rent, to like function yeah. in the three-dimensional world? I lived with my father. He worked in Chicago and wasn't home for you know three weeks out of the month. So I had the house to myself. And so for a long time, I sold drugs. I got them for free, or you know, like you know, I was an entrepreneur. We could say. <laughs> <laughs> and so, and and that those that was one of the ones that I was interacting with. Was there not ever a call to go to college? Or a pressure? No, no, there was a pressure from my family. There always has been. Academia was important to them. And I wanted nothing to do with the education system at all. I did not thrive there. I felt different. Yeah. And while I was smart enough to understand everything in the classrooms, I didn't put in the work with my homework or with other things like that. It just didn't interest me. For sure. Other things interested me, human nature, psychology. And I would read obsessively yeah. about these things in my own time. I remember I found Carl Jung's work at 18, 16, 18, something like that. I just started reading his yeah. books. And I'm just like, Man, this first, is it. I first found his stuff when I was 19. And it, I, I cringe 
remembering how badly I misunderstood it and tried to explain <laughs> it to other people. And a part of me almost knows that his work is so has so much depth. I'm mm. going to look back in 10 years on all my podcasts where I talk about Carl Jung. I'm going to cringe again, but that's also the sign right. that growth is happening. That's right. Yeah. So you get to age 22. Mm. It sounds like something happens then. Yeah. So in that, I don't remember the exact age, but in that frame, something shifted in me and I realized that I needed to have some sort of direction or purpose because I was just... I was out exploring the world. I lived two years of my life barefoot, just wandering, you know, in a hallucinatory state half the time, carrying my guitar around. But there came a point where that lack of direction, purpose, or um, place in the industrialized world didn't work anymore. Was there a specific moment for you? Or is this something that was kind of a slow, gradual change in, in memory? It just happened. There were a couple moments. Um, the a friend of mine and I began working on creating. I had an idea to create an internet radio station. This is before Pandora Radio was popular, before we really used the internet to listen to music, and so we set about creating that. He had the tech understanding of how to do those things and I had the idea and so we kind of paired up together. And so I moved cross country to be near him and to work on this project. And so that was around the point where I was like, okay, well, I've got to do something to make money, different to make money, you know? It was like this, this one way of making money, I'm constantly looking over my shoulder and I'm fearful. And so I began working with him on this project. And within the first six months, we were in 72 countries. Whoa. We used Shoutcast, I don't know if you remember that. It's a, um, Winamp has this, I think I don't think it might still exist, Shoutcast where you could create, you could turn your computer into a server and you could broadcast. Mm. And so we would take the desktop computer to coffee shops, wire into their internet and we'd broadcast shows. And then people submitted music to us and it just oh. was running continuously oh. and we were sending it to a server somewhere. It was cool, really cool. That kind of coalesced in this uh, disagreement between the two of us, fundamental disagreement. Everything was housed in his server. So he kind of, he just cut me out of everything. And that coalesced in, in more of a, like a legal kind of a thing where he kicked me out of the apartment where we were living and I came to get my things. And in that, he very vindictively pressed charges against me, claiming that I stole a bunch of stuff that I didn't steal. When I went to surrender myself for that, I found out that there was a warrant for my arrest. I was charged with 13 felonies in another state that I didn't know about. Oh my God. Yep. What age is this? Uh, I think 23. God. Yeah. All right. Keep telling us, please. Uh, it was terrifying. And that was like that come to God moment in life of, oh, fuck. I always feared that this might happen. I hear it is happening. I've got so much, you know, so much purpose in me in the world and I've been fucking around. And yeah. I, I just assumed that one day I would stop fucking around and I'd go get a job because I'm smart enough to do it. And I would just join the rest of the masses and becoming a part of society. Join the ant colony. Mm -hmm, exactly. 
But until that point, I was really hard pushing against it. I had a mohawk in high school. It was really anti-connecting with the world. And I can look back on that now and see that that was really just the push away that needed to happen. It was an activation of the, like my fighting, needing to fight against something because I couldn't protect myself when I was younger. At the time, I didn't know that's what that was. So um, yeah, I had to go through this whole legal process, hire an attorney in this other state and I went through the whole legal proceeding and they threw the book at me. So I was, I was sentenced to 14 years, but I all suspended. And I was able to, to spend it in, um, in, on probation. The first year was on house arrest. And so after that, it was a pivotal shift for me in my life because those six years I was, you know, I put it in air quotes here, stuck for lack of a better way of putting it. But I was forced to- oh, So you were on probation for six years? For six years. Yeah. I couldn't travel without asking for permission. They had my voice print, my fingerprints, my DNA, everything. And I was terrified of that happening, but it happened. And, um, and, and in that I'm like, okay, what the fuck am I gonna do with my life? What's gonna happen now? Can't get a job. The, you know, there's an immediate judgment about who I am, what I am and so on and so forth. And I retreated into myself again. But in that retreating, I began doing the soul searching and the work mm. to really unearth to unearth the, what is it that's gotten me here? Connecting with meditation, with reflection, with internal, getting curious about my body and working, beginning to work with some specialists. Given where you are now, um, what was the first like thread that that happened in that time period, or that maybe even happened before, but that brought you to who you are now, because you seem to be clearly someone who knows how he serves, mm -hmm. like how he shows up in the world. Well, and it feels like in the six year period, that's when some of these light bulbs started to come online. So I'm curious, what were the first emanations of who you are now that came to you in that time period? I found my way there through my exploration of um, mysticism and consciousness. And there's somewhere in the midst of that, there was an intersection for me. Um, I didn't identify it as personal development as it's identified in the world of coaching, you know, Tony Robbins kind of thing. But I saw the ways that I was undisciplined and I was disconnected from myself. I was disconnected from any sense of routine. And I began exploring that. I began exploring routines and I began exploring meditation, watching my thoughts, ritual, practicing ritual mm. and things like that. And that connected me to this sturdiness. And it also connected me to that pain that I was trying to turn away from. Mm. And so I dove into it in the midst of all of that. One of the things that I hear that I can feel is hard for me to hold is there's like, the justifications and the rationalizations that I hear people who have no discipline, who, who, who truly believe that having no discipline is uh, a spiritually valid path, which I wouldn't argue against, 
and that it's good for them and that they're not running, that it's just simply who they are. And I personally find that that story is not inherently false, but every human I've ever met in my life who employs that story about discipline are people who are clearly running. Mm-hmm. And I'm my intuition is that every single human on this planet has a set of behavior changes that they know they want that would help them become more of who they can feel they're being called to be mm-hmm. that would require discipline. And so for the people who might be listening, who might have that story about discipline not being for them, um, does anything come through you that wants to like yeah. address that? Yeah, I'll speak to that. Um, and it may just be a word choice because the word discipline can be charged for a lot mm-hmm. of people. Mm-hmm. I think of it in terms of organization or disorganization inside of us. And when I look back on myself, I was very disorganized. The flow of behavior was disorganized and with good reason. Right. There wasn't organization in my life. And so it really legitimately was a response to too much stress, trauma, too much, too fast, too little, too long. In that response, I became disorganized in the way I was in the world. Mm. And so structure inherently, it brought me face to face with that, which I was turning away from, that which was too much at one time. Yeah. And so I had to work with the part of me that wanted to turn away from that, which is too much, intelligently so. 100%. And I did that little by little, small incremental increases in my exploration of this. I smoked cigarettes for 17 years. I started when I was 12. And one day it was enough. I was done. It took years of wanting to be done mm. before I was ready to be done. This is a great point. So, um, kind of my area of expertise before I kind of like found my way, like at on it and then doing what I'm doing now, it was to be a habit change coach. Mm. And I read like all the top books. I was really, you know, I was big on, uh, I'm going to look away from the fact that I'm afraid to actually have to perform this. So I'm going to say that I'm being uh, a good student. I'm just going to research it for five years. But anyways, (laughs) um, I found that, the most unsuccessful way to try to change is to begin at implementing the behavior change. And that where the magic starts is the preparation to enact the attempt at changing the behavior. And that most people who have quote unquote dramatic changes, uh, if you actually dig into the process, there might've been like a three year on-ramp of them slowly starting to imagine what it would be like. Like, cause 100% it starts with, oh, I have a, I have a problem. I have something that I know is not good for me that I'm doing. And then it might be like a year or two of incubation of just the like slow buildup of self-realization of the guilt or the shame. Yeah, I agree. I mean, my approach with the work that I do with people begins with awareness. If I am unaware of the thing, I cannot even begin to consider changing it. I need to bring awareness to myself, to my behaviors, 
you know, as Jung would say, making the unconscious conscious, right? So I believe everything begins with awareness. And I can see when I look back that that's what happened. And there absolutely is an incubation period. It takes time for us to be ready to take that leap, so to speak, and move away from that which has been supporting us to modulate what was too much or too hard. It's a coping mechanism that's highly intelligent. And in our culture, we have a tendency to demonize these behaviors. We have a tendency to demonize addiction of any kind, right? But it's an intelligent response. That organism is doing the only thing it knows how to do to self-regulate even if that is toxic to the organism, yeah. it's still an intelligent thing to do. And so I had to remove the layers of shame from my behavior. I was a hundred pounds heavier, hundred pounds, man. And I, I buffered myself from the world. Right. I drank incessantly. I hid myself from myself and it took time. I knew what I needed to do. I knew what I needed to feel. I knew what I needed to acknowledge to myself. But every time I got close to it, I turned away because it felt like it was too much. Yeah, And I couldn't do it alone. I had to have a guide. I had to have someone there to help me to get close enough that I could feel it safely. How old were you when you found your first guide and how did they show up in your life? I was, well, I had little guides all the way through. There was a counselor. The first big one. I could feel that you were going towards that one. So... Yeah, the first set of mentors was in, it's kind of split. I'll say the first people that are outside of my direct family, um, it was in 2012. Uh, A woman named Linda Brady and a man named Michael Brady. Michael was obsessive about Milton Erickson's work. He was Mm. absolutely obsessive with it. He studied it. Yeah, me too. And Linda was obsessive with Jung's work. That sounds like a fucking bomb couple. <laughs> yep. And he, there was overlap for the two of them. Yeah. She studied Erickson less, much less. It was his, definitely his thing. Although he found his way there through Jung's work. Mm. They decided that they would step away from conventional therapeutic approaches and they interwove that into astrology, creating hmm. a version of astrology that really works with this language of uh, symbology and archetype. Interesting. And the unconscious being karmic astrology. And they had a program that they would take people through and teach them astrology. And they work one-on-one with clients still to this day. I think they're actually in developing an app of some kind now. But I began working with them and I worked with them for two and a half years off and on. I went, my mother purchased me, purchased a, a session with Linda for my birthday one year. She's like, you gotta do one of these birth charts readings. And I'm like, cool. And in 2012, how old would you have been just to give people a sense of the time? I'm 38 line? now. Okay. So it's 2021, so nine years, I mean, yeah, nine years ago. Yeah. So, so I began, I had this session with with Linda and I'm like, this is amazing. This is really cool. This kind of reminds me of um, the teachings that James Redfield interwove into his book, The Celestine Prophecy, Mm. which I read when I was 18. 
That was a that was a huge that shift curve. for me. Yeah. Well, I, I guess you were doing acid every day, so you were right on the curve. <laughs> the curve for me, I suppose. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that opened my world. I mean, like that was a beginning of me starting to play with energy and all sorts of things when I was eighteen. But I had always wanted a teacher, but hadn't found one, uh, and she became one of my teachers. So I did this session with her, and then she's like. She's like, you need to do a regression with Michael. I'm like, cool. I don't know what that is. Let's do it. <laughs> you know, like I've heard of this. This is great. I had studied astrology on my own. I had I worked with tarot cards. I mean, I have the tree of the of life tattooed on my back from my neck to my hips. And it Damn. covers my whole back. So I was immersed and steeped in magic and ritual and things like that in my life but I hadn't worked specifically with somebody. I just read books about these stories, the hero's journey, so to speak. And I wanted that for myself. I wanted to go live in Peru. I wanted to study with shamans. You know, I wanted what, what we hear stories about, we read stories about. And so she became, the two of them became the portal. So she's like, you gotta do a, a, a regression with Michael. And I'm like, okay. I'll do a, a regression with Michael. So I do a regression and I have this really profound experience of remembering. For me, it wasn't as much of remembering a lifetime as it was a creative visualization that I allowed to emerge from me that I constructed meaning around. You are speaking from my own heart. Thank yeah. you, brother. Yeah. And whether or not <laughs> we can go back in time or tap into some other dimension, I think is irrelevant. The meaning conveyed is the same. Correct. All that matters is how we make sense of that right. and integrate that into our life now. Exactly. And Michael said that to me. He's like, time is an illusion. Everything's happening like a sphere folded in, in on itself. And so it doesn't matter whether what you're experiencing is real or not. What matters is let it emerge in the format of a story. And that helped me to get past my mind which is highly active. It was very difficult for me to really ever tap in deep without some sort of substance to slow it down. So, so I had this experience and I was, I was hooked. So I began working with them on an ongoing basis. And my mother began doing a, a, a training, an apprenticeship program with them and she paid for me to join them. And at the time I was working as a bouncer. So I worked as a bouncer for five years during that what an interesting that, that, juxtaposition. Yeah. yeah. I learned about human behavior. Oh yeah. I learned how to diffuse it. I learned how about social interactions mm. and I was studying people. Were you taking LSD while you were bouncing? No. Okay. But in inter, intermittently in that time period, I was experimenting with, with psychedelics still. Yeah. I had to be careful, you know, the psychedelics were short acting, so I wouldn't have gotten in trouble, you know. They wouldn't. They couldn't test for that stuff. Oh, that's but I was, right. I was being tested uh, monthly, so I couldn't use the normal pathways to escape, and that that was the beginning of facing the things that I'd been turning away from for so long. You know, I had it in my mind, but I wasn't embodying what I had learned. Right. And so that was the beginning of that journey of embodiment for me. Can you tell us the story of um, having met those first two mentors? And then arriving to where you are now, like yeah, the, there was a pivotal moment. I went on a, I went to for a retreat with them. Well, I don't know if I'd say, it's, yeah, it was pivotal. I was there for a three day weekend with them, 
it was immersive. I arrived, they took care of all the food and I was immersed in this experience with him where we were just- Just you and- Just me and the two of them. Wow. I, I stayed with them for these three days. We're taking a look at my birth chart, but for that made sense to them. But for me, it wasn't so much about that. It was about deconstructing the symbols that are me, deconstructing my life, the experiences that I've had, the meaning that I've made and the things that I was carrying, the emotions that I was feeling and connecting to my body. And that was the beginning of connecting to the emotion in my body. What color does it have? What does it want to say? What wants to be emoted? Because they could see that I was really cerebral, but not embodied. And I was very smart and I wasn't embodying it. And so that was the beginning of it. It was mind blowing. While I was there, I've always been a person to just ask for what I want. I don't even think about whether it's socially acceptable or not, I just do. And I was like, how can I st- like live with you? I wanna study with you. Has this, have you ever done this? And they're like, well, no, we've never done that. <laughs> I said, well, could I do it? What would it take? You know. And so they thought about it. And they said, well, we could do an immersion of the year long, well, it was really a three year long apprenticeship program. We could condense it into a month, but it'll be 10 grand. And I was like, that's it, cool. So I, I talked to my mother to see if she'd be willing to help invest in this with me. And the stipulation was that I had to bring one person along. And we had a little cohort that was going through this apprenticeship program at the time. And so I just sent him a message and one of the women wanted to come. So I created this experience that they've never done prior to that and will never do again. This unique experience of living with them in a little cabin about five miles from the Canadian border in in Vermont. And like that was that pivotal catalytic moment for me. So I lived there for 45 days with him and we just deconstructed everything. We learned about symbols. We learned, I mean, like an encyclopedia of symbols and symbolism. We'd go on walks in nature and talk about the projected meanings of things. We analyzed our dreams. We practiced uh, hypnosis, induction, and regression work. Um, Did dream interpretation and learned astrology, learned the language of ourselves. And so from that point, that was this, oh, here's a model. I worked in in the theater industry at that point. And I mean, I made some money, but it wasn't great money. Uh, it was, there was joy in the work. And I've done some work in some cool places. Like I was able to work in Carnegie and I did grand opera stuff in, in different places. That's dope. It was cool. And it still wasn't on purpose. Right. I thought I was gonna work in music, in, in the music industry. I was like, this is gonna be it for me doors kept closing. But with this, with them, I saw a model. They charged hourly for phone consultation. They worked with people all over the world and they did something that that was innate in me, helping people to become awake to themselves. Mm. And they used the language of astrology to, to, to do that work. And so in 2014, I began doing that. And that was the introduction. And I was good enough at it that my mother was a psychotherapist by this point, brought me in and I started doing work with her in her therapy rooms with her clients. And so we began combining some of this. And and my perspective on this was all relatively avant-garde compared to the normal therapeutic approach to things. Oh yeah. Now, this is one of our connection points, your mother being involved in these kinds of things too. 
I got to do so many trainings as just for free. Yeah. Because the continuing education, right? And so I started experimenting. Some of the first clients that I worked with, um, schizophrenia, borderline personality disorder, bipolar, assortment of other things. So I had a chance to conceptualize what does it mean to work with a person who's work who's who's living in a traumatized state. And that was the introduction to the, to the conversation around trauma for me. And my mother went through the somatic experiencing training and I began getting curious. What year is this where you- It's uh, 2014. So 2014. Mm -hmm. So please, you know, continue to tell us the story of like from 2014 to now, because clearly finding trauma that's what I've heard people associate you with when describing mm -hmm. your purpose and service to the world to me. So it sounds like we just found one of the main threads in the tapestry of how you are now. Yeah. Um, can you kind of tell us the story of how that has unfolded for you? And what I'm curious to give to the audience is like, is to bring them to the point where they can understand like, what are you doing now? Like, so they can like imagine it in their mm -hmm. mind's eye. Like, yeah, we hear that you are helping humans develop, but mm -hmm. specifics, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So I'll see if I can be concise without, I can be long-winded on stories. Um, I don't feel that way, but I heard. Yeah, cool, great. <laughs> um, the, there was this pivotal point of exploration. I wanted to go and live in Peru starting in 2012. Like the Temple of the Way of Light had a, an internship program that they opened up and I wanted to go there. And instead of going there, what I ended up doing was working with Linda and Michael. They were like, this is a distraction. You can do this anywhere. Get to know yourself, go inward. And um, my mother. So, quick pauses. Have either of them done ayahuasca no. to be able to claim that it's just a distraction? No. And what they were looking at was the constellation of symbols in my chart. I see. Okay. So, this was specific. Okay. Yeah. Great. The desire to travel could be a distraction moving away from the pain. Heard. Right. So, it was just specific to me. Okay. And the argument that they made, I think, was a good argument of me. It wasn't that it was wrong for me to chase that and the innate knowing inside of yeah. me. It's just that when and could I find for sure. the steps along the way? And so and that ended up kind of coalescing in this magical moment of me going to Peru. Because I, and just a quick side of the thing that I want to share is like what I have found with the people that I know who their highest value on their hierarchy of needs is the need to travel. Every single one of them that I've met there is something from their past that they do not want to be still with. They do not want to look at, they do not want to feel. And it's alchemized. And like Instagram is like the ultimate narcotic for that type of coping yeah. because it can look so beautiful. Yeah. It can look so incredible. But if you're someone that knows that type of person, it's like that person can't sit in a room with me yeah. for yeah. four hours. Yeah. And at that time, I couldn't have found the stillness that would have been necessary to really integrate and experience living in the jungle mm. at that time. Yeah. It's almost like you have to get enough self-regulation to even 
digest big experiences that could transform yeah. you. I think that, and that's a conversation that we could have another time about my, whether or not I ever suggest people work with plant medicines at this mm. point. And, and there's a lot that I suggest happens prior to that right. because of internal regulation and right. um, just, yeah, there, I have a lot of opinions about that. We can maybe, if we have time today, we can address some of them. It was definitely a, I needed something in me to shift before I went. Um, and it's interesting that you bring that up. And there's a quick thing I wanna to speak to before I go back into the story. There are a lot of ways that we intelligently move away from that which is too much inside of ourselves. Amen. Right, exercise, caffeine, alcohol, sex. Those are just four simple ways. And there are so many more work, shopping. There's so many ways that we turn away from and we regulate ourselves or so we think. We mitigate the activation. If, and I, and I, I said this to some friends and they were kind of confused. But if you, if you are a person that regularly exercises, can you stop exercising and not fall the fuck apart. Exactly. Like for me and work, I know that I'm addicted to work. Like if there's a day, and I try to purposefully, I try to at least once a week, not just smash my morning routine that takes five hours that makes me feel so good about myself. And bruh, like it's borderline, like I'm going through, uh, like it feels like I have depression and ADHD and a hint of anxiety. And all I'm doing from the outside is I'm watching Netflix when the sun is still up. Yeah. Or I just didn't, I wasn't productive at my computer. And yeah, like it blows my mind how much the facade of Eric can fall apart on a single day where um, I'm choosing not to work. Like if I'm sick or injured, and this is also, this is a whole side thing, but it's like, my body knows, oh, the way that we stop Eric's dumbass from overworking is we either make him sick, we hurt our back, so he will fucking pause. It's a forced slowdown, yeah. yeah. It's intelligent the way the unconscious, our body, forces things to happen. Mm -hmm. Sickness, chaos in relationships. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, pain. Mm -hmm. It, it, we will have to stop at some point. Some of us are better at ignoring those signs yeah. than others. And some of our bodies are better at, at hanging, at like hanging in there, so to speak, mm -hmm. and pushing And what's through. funny is we call like, or at least in my life, what I see is the people who are the best at disassociating from the call of their body, we call them resilient or hardy. Yeah. Like, Hardy is the word that I hear used for the people in my life where it's like, mm -hmm. basically what we're saying is we can all see that your body's able to hold the most amount of trauma without breaking. Mm -hmm. And it's like, it's almost used as a badge of honor. It is, yep. And where I come from in life now, I can see that and dismantling that takes time. Yeah. Because a lot of these people have spent a lifetime 100%. building a structure to protect themselves from getting into that. Right? And that structure serves them. It serves 
the structure of life that they are now living in. It keeps it. You start picking at that, or you Bro. start working it and integrating <laughs> it. Life, my, the, it's the illusion that everything will fall apart. Yeah. Because the structure has to change to hold that new yeah. integrated self. And what's wild, man, is, and I think I told you about this when we talked the first time, but as I started developing the language and the insight to be able to see the hurt little boy or girl behind the impressive, magnificent suit of armor that's been put together for 20 years, I remember I was in a relationship and I saw like a piece of trauma and I just stupidly articulated it to her like in complete love with no judgment coming from me like as almost like a look mom be proud of me I did something smart I'm smart right mm. and the implosion of the relationship over the next month because fundamentally her body was like oh no if this thing is pulled on everything falls apart Therefore, we have to fucking destroy the yeah. thing pulling. And I was like a golden retriever puppy. I would just keep walking up to yeah. the thing, trying to pull the thing. And it ended up being one of the most hurtful things that's ever unfolded in my life. And it was a great teaching moment. Um, I forget who said it, but it's kind of one of the tenets of psychotherapy is um, it's something along the lines of don't reveal their trauma to them before, or it's not your place to even articulate what their trauma is for them. It's to slowly bring them to the realization. And I was talking to your point about the intelligence inside of us to know when to keep something away until we're ready. Well, and here's, here's something for all of the listeners to consider. If trauma is too much too fast or too little too long, if I'm re-experiencing the too much too fast too quickly, it really is too much too fast. Yeah. And what happens? The most intelligent response possible that my organism could, could use, it shuts down. We can't go right to the thing. Right. Techniques that lead right to the thing without building the structure to hold the thing are, are inherently not supporting integration. Mm. It might be supporting expression and catharsis. Interesting. But catharsis is not integration. And it might be supporting the ego of the person who identifies as a healer. Yeah. In the same way that yeah. if someone's new to being a personal trainer mm -hmm. and they get their first couple of clients, they will obliterate them. Yeah. To and I would ask themselves. And I would ask the question, what is it that feels good? the high feeling on the other side of the catharsis? Or are we really truly having an impact on the global structure of the organism? You know, are we really integrating this experience? Or are we chasing that feeling of contrast? Do you remember the thread in the story that I you do. were, okay, beautiful. Yeah, so coming back to the story. So how does that moment connect to trauma? Or how does the, the, the working with these, these mentors right. connect to my journey towards trauma? And being a person that's refer, like, that people say, you got to meet Will, he's doing work around trauma. Um, 
I went and I lived in Peru. In 2015, I had an opportunity that spontaneously happened and a friend invited me to come and I spent almost a year there. I lived in the jungle. I studied with the Shipibo. Was that your first time doing ayahuasca? It was. Oof. Yep. Yep. My first time was happenstance. This friend of mine and I... Heavy air quotation on happenstance. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, there's a quote by Einstein and it's a coincidence is God's way of staying anonymous. Love that. Yeah. Love that. Yeah. It was, it was everything about that journey was divine. It was the hero's journey. It, it, it unfolded the way the story of the alchemist unfolds. You know, like I was living, I was the character in the story, living it, knowing I was living it while I was living it witnessing the magic unfold. I think that's called enlightenment, dog. Uh, it might be. <laughs> <laughs> so we landed in Lima, Peru, my first time out of the States. We don't speak the, the language, neither of us do. And we don't have cell phone. We didn't pay for international cell phone. So we land there with no plan the first night. The second night, we've got an Airbnb. We get five minutes of free internet in the airport in Lima, we just assumed that there'd be internet and he wanted to rough it. So somehow we negotiate with some taxi drivers. That's a perilous situation at oh, the Lima man. airport as well. And he was convinced that he did not want to go with secure taxi drivers. He wanted to get a deal. He was a dealer, like a wheeler and dealer kind interesting. of person. Very interesting energy for me to be with. I had just gone through a coach training and you know, like I'm in this very different space of like beauty and love and connectedness and pursuing it. Like I had this very clear adventure and vision in my mind and he's really in a sad and desolate place inside of himself. We were going on this like self-discovery journey and it was, a lot of it was for him. And I, and I don't say that to downplay my own version of that. Um, so we land and he just picks a hostel close to the airport. I don't know if you've ever been to Lima. You've been to Lima? Yeah. It's not the best area right around the airport. No. No, I couldn't even equate it to somewhere here in the States. I don't know that there is somewhere that we could equate no. it to. Like, it really has a heavy, like far Eastern vibe with like how packed the streets are with mm -hmm. the cars and yeah. the, and like, it gives me anxiety to really like, as a Westerner, it makes me feel so small when I feel like, traffic here is difficult. Like no one is operating under the lines of the road. There's like every available square inch between cars, it's bikes. Or at least when I was there, cause it was during like rush hour. Yeah. And like how people aren't constantly dying in the road. It's, it's fucking fascinating. But yeah, it's, yep. it is of all the places I've been so far, that was the most shocking mm -hmm. right outside of the airport. It was shocking for me too. I, I had never been to a place like that. So he picks a place that's relatively close to the airport, but it's, it's, it's kind of desolate and decrepit. We don't know that. We just see a picture on the internet and he just picks it and we pick a driver, not a secure taxi driver, just some random dude. Driving a sidekick, some of the doors don't open. We have to get in on one side and it's beaten up. So we start driving and we downloaded the localized version of Google Maps. And so we're following along and he just starts going some random direction. We're like, oh fuck, what's happening? 
we brought guitars with us. We brought recording equipment with us. We've got microphones. You know, we, we had a lot of gear with us, computers. We were going to film a documentary and I was, I was obsessed with what does happiness mean? Because there's no true definition of happiness. Happiness is the state of being happy. And so I was asking everybody that I came into contact with what was happiness. And I was kind of keeping track of this. So we end up near the street and the road is destroyed. It looks like bombs have recently gone off and half of the buildings are decrepit and falling apart as if they were never repaired after the war in the 90s. And they probably haven't been. And we come up to this to these massive iron gates and there's a burned up car in front of one side and the other side's cracked open and we drive what into the it. Fuck. And I'm like, we are fucked, man. We are fucked. Where are we going? And we go down this really dark street with these, like some of the buildings are open. Some of the buildings are falling apart. There's rubble in the street. We pull up to the one painted house on the street. It's a, this, this like three story building and it's Adobe, but it's painted. And, and you're nowhere near the hostel. That is the hostel. Oh. So we get out and it was supposed to be four soles, which turned into 40. Oh. And the guy that I was with, his name is Brian. And he just starts arguing with the taxi driver. The taxi driver doesn't speak English. Brian doesn't speak Spanish. <laughs> so they're having their little moment of arguing. And this other car pulls up and this guy gets out. And I'm like, he was on the flight from San Salvador, El Salvador into Lima, Peru. I'm like, I recognize him. We kind of nod at each other. He goes inside. The guy from inside the hostel comes out and is like, get inside, get inside kind of stuff. The two gringos standing on the street and it was not safe, kind of, a, kind of the vibe I was getting. I was like, all right, look, let's just go inside, just pay the dude. So Brian's already grouchy. So he pays the dude. We go inside, it turns out, <clears throat> It turns out that the guy who just came in that was on the flight that we were on, the connecting flight, owns property in a small village called Tamshiaku, south of Iquitos in the Amazon jungle. It turns out that this guy also has been working with a shaman for the past 15 years studying, and he himself is an ayahuasquero, and he's in the country to cook to make a huge batch of ayahuasca for the Santa Daime church. Wow. And so he starts telling us about this and we're like, well, we really want to go there. This is a part of our journey. So we exchange emails, we stay up really late and the guy leaves early in the morning and we go on about our way and we, we find our way to this, this hostel, it's beautiful. And every last bit of this journey unfolds like that. We find our way in Iquitos, we're living in Iquitos. We meet some of the owners of a variety of different retreat centers while we're there. We befriend them. We befriend the owner of Dawn on the Amazon, which is a, a restaurant the owner has since died. But beautiful place. And we fall in love with the people there. And we end up going to Tamshiaku. And it's, you know, it's like a two and a half, three hour journey, four hour journey, something like that. I don't remember the exact details. We were on a slower boat you know, in the Amazon. Mm -hmm. And then a 30 minute, 45 minute ride on one of those, uh, it's like a tuk-tuk and you know, we call it, they call them motor cars, but they're not. It's just and through this, you know, uh, on this uh, sidewalk like path out into the jungle. And then we hike for 20 minutes. 
to get to these little shacks where we stayed. And in those shacks, that was where we had our first experience with ayahuasca. And it was magical and awful and amazing all at the same time. There were monkeys jumping on the building. Like it was, and I had, you know, I've experienced ego death with an assortment of different psychedelics. And I was like, oh, this is familiar. Mm-hmm. And then I was like, oh, this is different. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I had the context of trauma, physiology, understanding how the body stores and, and, and um, getting an understanding of the vagus nerve. So I brought this curiosity, having learned a little bit of Peter Levine's work prior to going to Peru, I brought this curiosity with me when I was in that psychedelic state, noticing the way that the body responds to ayahuasca. Now, I'm not a scientist, so I have no idea whether it's true or not, but I began to suspect that maybe ayahuasca is doing something to the vagus nerve because our, our bowels get activated, our parasympathetic nervous system gets activated. We get cold, we get hot, we sweat, we heavy breathe, hmm. we, we emote, right. our facial muscles twitch or are activated, we make sounds. Right? There's a discharge of sorts and it's activating our limbic system at times. Hmm. We can be paralyzed and dissociated at times or we can be highly present at times. And so I don't know, and you know, as more study takes place in this, well, I think we'll, we'll get a better idea. But I lived in a variety of different places, did some fasting, did some dietas. And while I was there, I met somebody that introduced me to my partner, my current partner. Well, now you got to start telling that story. I know. Came back to the States and five days after getting to the States, um, met her in an ayahuasca ceremony. And we spent our first 60 days or so in a little bubble facilitating, supporting the facilitation of some work with the medicine, which was beautiful and intense. Wow. And... The next type of year. romance I want. Let's do 60 day intensive with ayahuasca. It was intense, man. It was intense. And so in this, I started talking to her about somatic experiencing and the nervous system and and sharing these insights that I was having and some of the reading and learning I'd been doing and some of the things my mother had been teaching me about tracking bodily sensations and staying with our experience and titration and getting close to the thing without going into the thing and so on and so forth. And finally, we decided to embark on a, on the training together ourselves. So in the container of our relationship, we went through that three-year training. We did it in about two and a half years. But um, that was the immersion into trauma, the entry point into the trauma-focused world. And at the beginning of that is when you first came to Austin and you started to lay the roots here? Mm-mm. No, we had finished our somatic experiencing training by the and time they came, came to Austin. Austin. Yeah, we, we came to the advanced cohort here in Austin before moving here. I have some friends here, Ta Witty and Cole Witty, and uh, they're, they're wonderful humans. And Ta and I had been connecting virtually and we'd been planning a men's retreat. And his wife flew me in for his birthday in 2018. And I fell in love with Austin. I was like, yep, this is it, this is home. Mm-hmm. It's a pretty good spot. Yeah. I've been working internationally with folks, you know, 13 different countries over the past six years or so. And, you know, my clients have done really cool things. You know, I've worked with a 16 
like uh, a producer that's worked for National Geographic and Discovery. He's got 16 Emmys. Wow. You know, I helped a woman broker a billion dollar deal buying the debt of a state in Australia. Wow. Like some really, really cool stuff, but I wanted to be closer in physical proximity to the people that I was working with, which is what brought me here to Austin. And so the intersection of trauma in my work was what are the developmental pieces that I'm missing in this coaching world? The coaching's top down, but it's really surface level and it's goal oriented and structure oriented. And what I found in my own experimentation with clients starting in 2014 was that it took a lot more than simple structure, three months, you know, whatever we, you know, like the smaller containers right. to really get a result. And so I started experimenting with like a year long container. And then I started thinking about transformation from the perspective of development. How long does it take us to develop into who we are now? The stages of development, the shape that we make, the structure of our emotions, the structure of our thinking, you know, all of those different, the structure of our physical body, all of that gives us clues. But change doesn't happen spontaneously. There is no quick fix for anything. It all takes time because we're complex creatures and we're in a, an amalgamation of so many different complex layers. Wait, but that Instagram ad that I saw for that course said... Yeah. yeah, it's like I could get a six pack in 90 days. I mean, maybe if you're using steroids or if you starve yourself, I mean... But what's wild is that no one is av- no one is even advertising, advertising 90 days. It's right. like two weeks. I know. Four weeks. I know. And that that's the thing. We're intoxicated with quick fixes, taking pills, and not actually indoctrinated into getting close to the things that are uncomfortable. That was one of the things I learned from the Shipibo. If it's not uncomfortable, you don't need it. The discomfort is healing taking place. Whoa. Okay. If this poison that you're putting into your body makes you feel like shit, it makes you throw up, or gives you diarrhea then your body's not in a homeostatic state, essentially. Interesting. Right? So they don't get sick from that stuff in small doses. Hmm. So their mindset around this is totally different, is move towards the discomfort, live into the discomfort, befriend the pain, befriend the discomfort, and freedom is inside that. Wow. It's kind of like meditation in Vajrayana Buddhism. You're leaning into that edge of discomfort and learning to befriend it learning to befriend that the emotion, the intensity inside of ourselves. Yeah. Because we have a tendency to turn away from that. I can feel where I feel like I'm incredibly um, competent when it comes to being befriending the edge of any psychological discomfort. But the moment it starts to move into, oh, maybe I'm hurting my body or, oh, this could kill me. I feel like an infant. Of course, which would be, I mean, it's an intelligent response to survival, right? Our bodies, the organic structure of us grows in the way to keep us alive, which means we turn away from that which could threaten our survival. Yeah. Like I can feel my soul melt off of my bones in a psychedelic experience, but I'll fucking flinch at the vibration of a bush because I assume it's a snake, but there's, I've never like... I'm I'm in a neighborhood in yeah, Texas. Five hundred million years that, yeah. that are dictating that survival response in your brainstem. Yeah, there's only eighty million years dictating your response between you and another human being. Mm. The social element of our nervous system is only roughly eighty million years old. 
right? We're the only, well, mammals, the only creatures that have that ventral branch of our vagus nerve, yeah. right? So like the social system, it's, it's young by comparison to the innate responses. I love that. And the only part of our autonomic nervous system that we control is our breathing consciously. Everything else is automatic. We cannot control it consciously as much as people believe that and want to believe that they can. We can influence it. And that's with repetition and routine. Doing subtle little things over time help us to um, you know, elucidate those global shifts and changes in the structure of our system. And that's where I do a lot of my work now is in that subtle shift but thinking in a long arc, how can we do the most effective work and have it not feel like anything's happening? And a lot of the work that I do, I have to really contextualize it with people because they're like, we just didn't do anything. Why did I pay you so much fucking money? That's, to exactly, do that's exactly what I was just thinking. Yep. And so we need the greater context of us as an organism. And we need to understand that greater context in order to really step into like, oh, I'm doing a thing that feels like nothing because we're so indoctrinated in doing something that feels intense right. to get a result. Because we're Americans. <laughs> I mean, I, I would argue that the industrialized world is indoctrinated. I completely agree. This, but yeah. It's the Western ethos. Mm -hmm. um, could you, without revealing anything that would uh, help people identify an actual person, can you share a case study of a, of a before, what the intervention was and the after just to give people yeah. a sense of like, what is the transformation that's taking place? And yeah. what is the modality that's ushering in the transformation? Well, at this point in my work, it's, a, it's an amalgamation of a variety of different modalities. Like I'm, I pull from mysticism, I pull from ritual magic, or I pull my understanding of these things. I pull from psychotherapy, I, I pull from, you know, analytical work or archetypal work. I pull from the hypnotic work and I pull from Peter Levine's somatic experiencing work. That's, that's one that I will often use as an entry point for the physiological stuff. So a great one example of a case study, a woman came to me and they, they didn't really, they couldn't really identify what the thing was that they wanted to work on. So we did a session and we didn't meet for another 60 days. She had a powerful and potent experience. I helped to guide her into her body. We didn't talk about any of the psychology of what was going on in her life until afterwards. So all of it was present, focused, tracking our internal experience and allowing what needed to emerge to emerge that had been restricted for so long. But 60 days later, when I talked to her, she had dropped almost 30 pounds. She had restructured her life. She had restructured her relationship with food and her relationships had different kinds of boundaries. Within another, let's see, how long was it? Another month or two, she'd made more money in a month than she'd made in years. Her relationship structure started to change. She left a toxic marriage. She got a career. I mean, she, she went through a career change. She got a dream job. It's been, it's been almost three years. I think it's been three years now that I've been working with her off and on. She now runs her own agency. 
She, she also runs a secondary thriving business. Extraordinary individual. The things that were once a part of her are no more, yet she's still herself. It's just more embodied. She's integrated an assortment of a variety of like traumas that were stored physiologically. And so that means the structure of her relationships are, are different. I mean, her, the ease at which she's able to make money is different. That's just one example. Yeah. I did a session with a guy and his tinnitus disappeared. Just like that. Now, I don't claim to be able to create that instantaneously by any means. It's just that sometimes our system just needs a little help. Right. We create the right conditions and healing's possible. That's just what are the right conditions for that particular thing. What is your vision? You know, like if you stepped fully into a Martin Luther King moment and you said, I have a dream and you really try to articulate like, what is the kingdom of heaven vision if you, you'll allow me the metaphor that you would like to use your life to try to bring into reality? There's two things right now. One, regulation in the coaching industry, creating a third option that bridges the gap between therapy and coaching. So that's number one. And there's a huge mission in um, the beginning stages of generating an, a, a, um, an institute of sorts, but it's begun with a training company that my partner and I run called, it's at somaticcoachtraining.com. So trauma and somatics is what we call a program. Um, so that's one. Two, I believe that if I could help the most influential and powerful people in the world to feel safe and regulated, mm. to build resilience inside their bodies, that the influence of that would change our planet. If they can know inside themselves what it feels like to be alive, like that, that changes everything and to for feel us safe. and to feel safe. Like a generation of all the most powerful people feeling self-regulated and safe in their own body would probably improve the environment, the poor, yeah, and the economy in that order. Yeah. Because the economy should not be placed first. I think the biggest the I think trauma is the biggest wound that we yeah. are carrying as a yep. species. That affects and touches everything. It affects and touches everything, absolutely. We can see it inside of everything, addiction, politics, relationships, family structures, every single thing. We have a history of war as a species. For sure. It's, it's, it's generational trauma and it's responsive and it's intelligent and it's causing so much pain and suffering that's unnecessary. I could not agree more. As the last question, and this is my favorite question, and take as long as you need to feel into it. And it's kind of a multi-part, but it's really one. Um, let's say that you have arrived on the last day of your life. You've accomplished your dream. And you know that you're going to die peacefully in your sleep at the end of this day. Will you walk me through what this ideal last day would be like? What would you do? Who would you be with? And then I have a few more questions to add on at the end. Yeah, I know very clearly what it would be. I would be surrounded by family. 
and friends, if any of my friends are still alive. But I would be surrounded by those that I love. I would be supportive, supported rather, and I would be um, celebrated. And I would feel a sense of celebration for having had the opportunity to live a full life. Is there any specific activity that you know you would want to do on that last day? It would be connection. It's not a, it's not a, an activity of any kind, really. It would, it would be the richness of being present with those that I love and those that love me. And you're about to go to bed on that last day. Mm-hmm. If you could leave a letter to your grandchildren or your children, what would you leave on that piece of paper? What would you write? It might seem easier to turn away from the things that are hard or from truly living, but by leaning in, we can really experience the richness of life. Curiosity will carry you far and presence, true presence in ourselves body awareness, mind awareness. It's like, it's like the, the holy grail and the secret to life. When we can live embodied and present, almost anything's possible. And now I want you to imagine some old man or old woman is around a fire telling a story to a little boy or a little girl. It's years after you've passed How would you want them to tell the story of Will? How detailed do we want to go here, Eric? Your intuition. I think if we were to give an overview or a feeling. I guess a better way to articulate this is like the obituary. Yeah. Like the one to five senses. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think the the obituary of sorts would be less about my physical accomplishments in the world and more about the way that people felt being around me. That sense of safety and inspiration, Mm. that sense of connectedness and aliveness, and that sense of those things inside themselves, the way it inspired them and moved them to go and and to really live and to to experience that richness of being alive Mm. in life. And that it was intoxicating and enlivening and and it pulled those those people forward in the world. Beautiful man. Thank you so much for coming on. And uh, if people would like to connect further with the myth that is Will, uh, where can they go? What would you recommend? Yeah, I would recommend, you can find me on social media, Will Reason, R-E-Z-I-N. Um, and for the training program, it's somaticcoachtraining.com. And for my personal website, it's awakensoma.com. Thank you so much, brother. Yeah, brother.